continue in the study of God's word where we find ourselves in Exodus. We started the 10 words a couple weeks ago with an introduction. Last week, we looked at the first word, which was um, have no other gods before me. And we talked about that in the context and in the, in the flow of Exodus where we looked at this uh, setup of a Jewish wedding ceremony that we see from the beginning of Exodus all the way up into um, the 10 words. And the 10 words we talked about, we, we refer to them as commandments and, and it's not bad to, actually they are referred to as commandments in Deuteronomy, but interestingly they're not referred to as commandments here, they're only referred to as words. And the significance of that, I believe, is that they serve as the vows being exchanged between a bride and a groom, and that's like the ketubah of a Jewish wedding ceremony. And so when it comes to this point, God has already demonstrated his love for his people. He's chosen them among all the generations and all the other people on the face of the earth, and he says, I want to enter into a relationship with you. And um, this is a beautiful picture of, of God giving his best and inviting them into a relationship. And so the words are the vows. And this becomes the serious part of any marriage, uh, becomes a serious part of any wedding, because you get to this point, and this is what we're agreeing to. We're stating out loud in front of witnesses that you have to be first and foremost in my life, and I have to be first and foremost in your life, and, and that's the only way this relationship is going to work, because if we try to make it work any other way, um, if we bring other lovers into this, it's all going to fall apart. And so ultimately, that first word is you can't have other lovers, and we talked about what those other lovers might would be. For them, it was the temptation of the foreign Canaanite gods. Uh, for us today, it is the temptation of anything that could serve in that capacity of our love and devotion and affection outside of, of God. And that could be any way, anything that we serve, like it could be our jobs, it could be a relationship, it could be our academic pursuits, it could be so many different things that we put first and foremost that it becomes a God in our life. It becomes something that we love above and beyond God. Now, I'm not saying that you have to exclude all those things from your life. It's that God is first and foremost. And so we see all of those things through our relationship with God. Therefore, God is first and foremost and center and everything prioritizes beyond that. Now we come to the second word, which Rusty just read for us here. And the second word, um, I think a lot of people confuse it with the first word. So in other words, uh, I don't want you to have any other gods before me. In other words, not prioritize, but no other gods in my face, no other gods in front of me. And um, the second one is, and I also don't want you to worship like these graven images and idols that the other people worship. But that's not exactly it. It has a little slight nuance. The first one is about foreign gods and other gods. The second one is about worshiping the right God, but in the wrong way. Uh, one author put it this way. He says, whereas the first commandment forbids us to worship false gods, the second commandment forbids us to worship the true God falsely. How we worship matters nearly as much to God as whom we worship. I thought that was a great, concise way of putting it. That's what really separates the first command from the second. The first one is no other gods. The second one is how we do worship the one true God. So it's not just about, you know, there's only one God and us acknowledging that and us focusing on that. God wants to be approached in a certain way. And what scripture keeps telling us over and over again is that God wants 
wants a personal relationship with you. He doesn't want any other mediaries between you and him. He doesn't want you to worship an idol that represents him. He doesn't want you to worship your job because you give a portion to what you make from that for him. He doesn't want you to worship your mission or your ministry because you do that in his name. He wants you to worship him directly, a one-on-one relationship. This would be the same as any husband and wife and their right expectation to say, I, I don't want you to go out and make a lot of money for me. I want you, well, some of you women would say like, I'll try it. But no, I mean, if, it, if we really come down to it, we would say, I want your devotion. It reminds me of a story I heard one time about a a woman who fell ill, and because of her illness, um, she became incapacitated to be able to walk anymore, but she loved gardening, but she couldn't get out of the house. And so the husband carried on like her passion. And so he went and, and cleaned up the greenhouse and got everything going back after uh, her long illness. And, and now that she was there in the home and she was stable, but yet she wasn't able to get out and do the things that she did anymore. And so he went out there and, and he started cultivating her garden for her. And he would have to come back in and ask, how did you do this? And how did you do that? Well, after a long time, the husband kind of got the swing of things and he spent less and less time with her and more and more time out in the garden. Now, he was doing it from the perspective, at least at the beginning, of I'm doing this because of my love for my wife. But what happened in the end was she said, I would rather that place fall apart and you be in here with me and spend time with me than for you to be gone all day long and just bring me back a rose every once in a while. And do you, do you see how very easily good intentions can fall short of what the intention of the relationship is? And good things can easily become these things that are idols in our life where we are still honoring the person, but we're not honoring them in the way that they want to be honored. They want to be honored with a personal relationship with our presence and our devotion and our attention and our attentive listening to them and caring for them. That's what's important in relationships. That's what's important in marriage. And that's what's important in our relationship with God. God wants to spend time with us. God wants us to spend time with him. But so oftentimes we will go and do a whole bunch of things for God, hoping he will be pleased with us. When in reality, what he wants us to do is spend time with him. And from that time, we will figure out what we are to do with our time throughout the week, throughout the months, and really with our whole lives, the direction that we find there. So the first commandment forbids false gods. The second command is forbidding false worship. Now, as you break down these few verses here, you see that there are four things that are mentioned here. Now, as I approach this, one thing that I found is there's not enough time to really dig into this. I know it sounds crazy because it's like very simple, like, hey, don't make foreign images or, or graven images and, and, and um, you know, don't worship these things. And we think, well, that's pretty straightforward. But when you really begin to break it down, you find out there is so much here. We could spend literally a few weeks on just these couple of verses. But you do see four sections to it. The four sections are the rule that we find there, which is don't make images. The second one is the reason because God is a jealous God. The third thing we see is a warning is that the sins of the father are passed on to the third and fourth generations. And then the fourth thing is the promise. But to those who will hear, to those who will obey, there is a blessing that's extended to a thousand generations. Okay, So that's really how you see this second word broken down. I'm going to spend the majority of the time on those first two and kind of sum it up with those last two. And so let's jump into this. The rule, verse 4 
is no idols, okay? Can't have any graven images, anything that you've made with your hands, anything in the shape of, of something that is created in which you are attempting to worship the creator. This is really about the worship of Yahweh, the one true God, who is the creator of all things. And what he's making a distinction of here is don't confuse the created with the creator. Don't worship images thinking that you are worshiping the creator of that image. I invite you into a direct relationship with me. That's the rule that he has there. Don't make something. Don't fashion something. I don't care how big it is, how small it is, how much you think it makes you think of me. I don't want you to have something visual with edges and representations that you are giving your allegiance and passion to and your worship to. I want it squarely for me. And then the reason really follows up closely with the rule. And the reason is because God is a jealous. God. Now, when we hear this word jealous, we tend to think of it negatively and probably rightly so because in our culture, we use that term in mostly a negative context. First of all, let me just tell you what the word jealous means in its, in its root. And it means to have your face turn red. Okay? So it's in the context of, of like a husband who finds his wife with another lover and his face becomes red and raised. He's angry, right? He is upset at what he has discovered. And rightly so, we would say he deserves to feel that way because there is a relationship or a vow that has been violated. Okay, So that's, that's the root of that word. Now, the context of this is usually a negative context, especially in our culture today. But oftentimes, we confuse jealousy with envy, or we, can choose, we uh, confuse jealousy with covetousness, and we kind of just lump them all together. And like, if you want something that somebody else has, you're just jealous of them, or you're jealous of their status, or whatever it may be. But there is a context where jealous, jealousy is a very good thing. And that context is when something does rightly belong to you, and that thing has been taken away. There should be a feeling of jealousy that goes along with that. I would even say that the scripture talks about, especially in this context here, a holy jealousy. And a holy jealousy is one that, that guards someone's rightful possession. Okay, so a mother is jealous for the protection of her children. So that mama bear comes out whenever she feels like someone is violating that or someone has crossed over those boundaries. And so mama bear comes out and she's very aggressive and mad and angry and she's very protective, right? She is jealous for the protection of her children. A man may be jealous for the affection of his wife. He sees someone trying to come in and trying to uh, grab her attention or trying to get her attention or to woo her in some form or fashion. And he comes out against that person, draws the line in the sand. Why? He should be. He wants the affection of his wife. He wants her attention. I would say that it's a bad thing if he doesn't. Would you agree? That if he doesn't get upset, that he, if he doesn't feel jealous in that sense, because there's something wrong, that's not love. I like how one commentator said, he said, godly jealousy is not the insecure, insane, and possessive human jealousy that we often interpret this word to mean. Rather, it is an intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love, like a mother's jealous protection of her children or a father's jealous guarding of his home. You see... 
a God who is not jealous would be just as contemptible as a husband who was not jealous for the affection of his wife. Do you see that? What, what I'm saying to you, and I want you to hear this very clearly, if God is not jealous for our worship, then he's not a good God because he deserves it. He is the one who has paid everything to have it and he wants it. I mean, think about this for a moment. What would God be like if he saved us, but he really didn't really want us to come around a whole lot? What if he was bothered by your prayers or your presence or your seeking him? What if he was like, oh my goodness, you again? You want me to bless that peanut butter and jelly sandwich again? I mean, could, now come on, please. I mean, what kind of God would he be? But God isn't, he's jealous for our time. He's jealous for our affections. He's jealous for our love because he is a good God. And we want him to be that way. So the word here is, don't make an idol in any form to represent me and don't worship me through anything else. Now, where does this idea come from? Well, I really believe it comes from the nature of God. And when you understand this, you really begin to understand why he insists that we have no idols in our life. In Deuteronomy, Moses is reminding this generation that's about to go into the promised land what happened at Mount Sinai. Remember, this is 40 years later. This is after the wilderness wanderings and all the shortcomings and that unfaithful generation is beginning to die out. And he's talking to this group of people. Some of them, when the 10 words were spoken at Mount Sinai, this, they were probably young children, maybe very young children. Some of them probably not even born yet. And so Moses is telling them and reminding them of things that they saw, or he's telling them, reminding them of things that their parents told them that they saw there at the mountain. He's reminding them of this for a very specific reason. I want you to see how this develops in Deuteronomy chapter four, beginning in verse 10. Moses says, how on that day... You stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. The Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. Look at the next part right there. You heard the sound of words, but you saw, what does he say? No form. So you heard the words of God, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. It even reminds me when Elijah, the prophet, was running because he was just burnt out and he was tired and he thought he was the only one and all of his efforts were for nothing because no one was turning to worship God. And so he was just running and he was trying to get away and he wanted to die. And there was this time when God said, you know, don't give up. And God kind of showed himself and he said there was a fire and God wasn't in the fire. And there was a, a, a earthquake. God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was a wind, but God wasn't in the wind. And it says, and there was this still small voice that said, Elijah, prophet of Israel, what are you doing in Egypt? In essence, 
And God is in the voice. God speaks to us. He invites us to speak with him, to converse. But notice every time there is no form, there is no image that we see that represents God. Now, it continues on if you look down in verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 4. This same line of thought that Moses has given continues. Look at verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that's in the water under the earth. And beware, at least you raise your eyes to the heavens. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Do you see what he's warning them of? Number one, he pretty much includes everything in that doesn't he? I mean, there's really nothing that's left out. Something in the water, something on the land, something up in the sky, okay? Anything that you could possibly look at and go, isn't this beautiful? And you begin to worship God through it. God never calls us to worship him through a sunrise. God doesn't call us to worship him through creation. God doesn't call him to worship him through animals or through the celestial bodies. He calls us to recognize these things and his handiwork that would point us back to him. Do you see the difference in those two? Now, it's not that when you look at these things that you don't stand in awe of God's great artistry. It's not that when you see these things that you don't love the fact that, you know, the, maybe the companionship that you have with your dog, or maybe it's uh, something that you appreciate when you go to a zoo or some kind of wildlife safari and you just see the vast different kinds of animals that are out there, or maybe even some of their similarities or some of their little nuances of how they act or how smart they may be. And you just sit there and go, man, this is amazing. But never should you worship God through those things, you worship God because of. So they always point you back to a direct relationship with God. Because what happens is, if we begin to substitute these for God, what happens is we begin to worship absent of God. So if I can create a little idol, let's just go with idols for a moment, and I, let's say I carve something, and for me, um, I love the verse, you know, Isaiah that says, I will mount up on wings as eagles. And I just say, you know what, that just reminds me of God's faithfulness, so I carve with my own hands this eagle, and I kind of put it up in my house, and that's a reminder of, of that verse. But then uh, all of a sudden, I, I just keep coming into that place, and I look at that thing, and I'm reminded, you know, I'm going to mount up like an eagle. And then all of a sudden, I'm thinking more about eagles than I'm thinking more about God. I'm thinking more about what I am to accomplish uh, other than what God wants to accomplish through me. I don't know if you see that, if that was very clearly explained or not, but do you see where I'm going with that? Very easily and subtly, we're taking off of our attention towards God, and our attention becomes more focused on what we want to do and what we want to accomplish and what we love to think about. And all of these things that we see and appreciate God through, those are great, but they are never meant to take the place of our adoration and our praise and our awe 
of God. And that's what Moses is um, warning them of here. So we have a God here that does not exist in any shape or form. Now, to compare that to what they were used to, all the neighboring nations around them did have gods that had a shape or a form. They had idols that they worshiped, whether it was Baal or Asherah, whoever that may be. They were worshiping these gods, and they were worshiping the images of these gods, okay? These images had definite animal features. Sometimes they had human features. Sometimes they looked like the celestial bodies, like Amon-Re in Egypt was the sun god. So it looked like the sun over someone's head. So there are all these mixtures of both man and celestial bodies and beasts of the field or even maybe fish or animals that you find in the water. All of these different things would be combined into these different representations of who God was. Remember in Egypt, there was a God that represented the frogs and a God that represented the cattle. And there was a God that represented the the, um, keeping of those things in their right proportions. So they had many, many gods because if you think about it, they had many, many needs. So they kept creating gods to meet one need. And that really is the difficulty of creating images. It's because what image can you create that fully represents God? I mean, what can you really put together that you say, now that represents God? Maybe you make the largest one you've ever seen. It towers into the sky. You have to put a red light on top of it so planes don't hit it. And you're like, now that, that represents my God because he is so big and so mighty. But yet your God is also small, isn't he? Doesn't he take care of your daily bread? Doesn't he know how many hairs are on your head? not that impressive with me, but maybe with some of you it is. Um, But the thing is, God cares about the little bitty details of life. So yes, we can think about this really big, great, creative, massive God, but it really doesn't speak to how he loves us intimately, how he knows what we need before we even know that we need it. See, God is both big and small at the same time. Now, I think there's something very interesting that happens to Moses that really impacts him and his view of this as well. Uh, In Exodus chapter 33, I think this is why he really reiterates it again in Deuteronomy. In Exodus 33, he has this event that happens to him. And he asks, God, I want to see your glory. So there's something about God's glory that Moses knows is what separates separates him from everything else on the face of the earth, that his glory is his renown. His glory is what is a part of his character and pulls all those things together. And so Moses makes this request, God, may I see your glory. So there's something there that Moses realizes he has never seen. Think about that for a moment. Because when he went up on the mountain, it says that the presence of God was there and Moses came down glowing. And yet Moses still feels like he hasn't seen the glory of God. There was a tent of meeting where it says that that Moses came in and met with God one-on-one and God spoke to him. And yet Moses still doesn't feel like he's seen the glory of God. And so towards the end of the book of Exodus, Moses makes this request, Lord, I want to see your glory. Look at what God says to him in uh, this passage. Look at verse 18 where the request is. Moses said, please show me your glory. Verse 19. And he said, I will make all of my goodness, not my glory, my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. 
And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will, be mer- I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, just know here that there's a lot of what we call anthropomorphic images that's used. Anthropomorphic just means there are things that we think of as humans that we relate to God, but God doesn't necessarily have, like the face. We know what faces are, and being face-to-face with someone means something to us. It speaks of transparency and honesty and even intimacy. And so we will say, I am seeking the face of God. But God doesn't have a face with eyeballs and a nose, breathing oxygen like we do. And he doesn't have lips and teeth that come together and form words. God is a spirit and being. So whenever we say something about the face of God or the arm of God or the hand of God, those are called anthropomorphic images. There are things that we use to relate it to somehow we understand the hand provides or gives. So we relate that idea to God's giving or provision for us. And the seeking of the face is seeking of the intimacy of God. Okay, do you see what I'm saying? So when he says to him, I cannot show you my face, he's basically saying, I cannot show you my glory. I cannot let you intimately see everything about who I am. It would kill you, okay? But then he says, I will let you see my back. Now that's a little bit confusing because you would think, well, God is glorious in every aspect of his being. And it'd be weird to think, well, his back is not as glorious as, as the front, you know? So his face is very glorious and you can't handle that. Back is less glorious, therefore you can look at that. So we know there that's not what that could mean. So we really have to define these words to figure out what's going on. Number one, the word back literally translated means where I was. Okay, so you're looking at the back. In other words, you're looking at where God just was. The word hand could also be translated as the word shield. So in other words, I'm going to put my hand over, I'm going to shield you from my glory as it passes by, and then I'm going to unshield you, and I'm going to let you see where I just was. Now, think about that for a moment. God says, remember the original request was, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't handle seeing my glory, but I tell you what, Moses, this is what I'll do. I will put you in a place and my glory will pass by and then I will remove the shield and I'm going to let you see where I just was. I'm not there anymore, but I was just there. And that will be enough to blow your mind. Now think about that for a moment, how powerful God's glory is. And sure enough, when Moses sees this, I mean, he sees this this fantastic experience of the presence of God. And yet God, his glory isn't even there anymore. It just passed through there. Now, why is Moses so adamant for these children when they enter into the promised land to not make images? I truly believe it's because of this experience. Because he said, you know what? There's nothing that I could create with my hands. There's nothing that I could conjure up in my mind that would represent what I saw that day. God has no edges, no boundaries. There's nothing that can perfectly represent him. 
And therefore, he calls us to know him, to pursue him, to be intimate with him and seeking him and seeking his knowledge and his wisdom and his direction for our lives, understanding his love for us and the grace that he shows to us, understanding who he is and what he wants. That's what God wants us to seek. Now, God fundamentally reveals himself to Moses, and again, no shape, no edges. Now, have you ever met these people? And you probably have, in your family, um, sometimes maybe even your small group, although I tend to think these people don't go to church a whole lot. Um, they say things like this. Well, when I get to heaven, I got some questions for God. <laughs> you ever heard somebody say that? When I, when I hear somebody say that now, I just want to slap them. I really do. I just like, do you really think that when you get to heaven, God's going to go, any questions? <laughs> or do you think when you get there, it's going to be like, it says that we're not going to be like this, where we just see where God's glory was. It says that we will see him face to face. You're not going to say anything. You're going to be in awe. You're going to be shocked. You're going to both feel this feeling of fear and anxiety and joy and peace all at the same time because you're just going to be in awe of what you are seeing that you never could have imagined in your mind ever before. And when you see it, you're going to go, no wonder he didn't want us to make any images of him. There's nothing that represents what I have just experienced. It's going to blow us away. That's what scripture points us to. So remember in Deuteronomy, when God recognized, he was recognized only with words, no shape or form. He is undefinable, okay? Now, that's true here in our text, but I want to show you that this was reiterated again in the New Testament. This was a time in John chapter 4, and you're familiar with this story. John, uh, Jesus meets uh, this lady who is at a well, and she's come out there to get water in the heat of the day, and Jesus is sitting there, and um, he is kind of like parched, and he wants something to drink, and all the disciples have gone into the town because they are just wanting to get through Samaria as fast as they can, and Jesus is all of a sudden just stopped and like, oh, I'm tired. I can't take another step, and they're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, let's get through Samaria. Hurry up, and then we'll rest, and he's like, no, I got to stop right here, so they go into town to get him something to eat, and this lady comes out to the well where Jesus is sitting, and he asks her to draw a drink of water for him, and she brings up the whole controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans and how they worship on different mountains. Because if you remember, we're doing that. We're studying this right now in our uh, Old Testament class, uh, and and we uh, see when Ezra and Nehemiah come back, the the Samaritans who have intermarried with other pagans, they want to come and help with the rebuilding of the temple. And Ezra's like, absolutely not. You're not going to do that. Which then creates a rift between the Jews and the Samaritans, which even existed into Jesus's day. And the Samaritans went and built their own temple, which is why she b brings that up in this conversation. But before it ever gets to that. Jesus kind of says, well, if you knew who I was, you would ask me to give you a drink of water. And she's like, ha, 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 you don't even have anything to draw water with. And he says, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. You have had five husbands, and the man that you're living with right now is not your husband. There's this long, quiet moment, and she goes something like this. I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> and she does what anybody else does at that moment, and she says... 
Let's change the subject. She says, my father say that we worship on that mountain, but your father say that we should worship on the mountain in Jerusalem. Which one is true? And Jesus says something that is fantastic, that is so not expected in this moment, and it transcends everybody's thought of that day and time. He says, a time is coming, and if you can accept it, it's already here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Not in that mountain or on that mountain, but listen, true worshipers will be able to worship him on any mountain. To think that God only resides on that mountain or to think God only resides on that mountain, you've made God too small. You've given God borders and edges that don't exist with him. God is everywhere, and he can be found everywhere, and he will not be contained in little worship houses. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, no edges or boundaries. In truth, no edges or boundaries. Now, that's pretty fantastic right there, and if you think about that, uh, that's pretty powerful. Because when you think about the idea of, of, of spirit... What Jesus is saying is when we think about worship, we think about physical space, but true worship doesn't happen in the physical, it happens in the spiritual. All right, so we think about, we've come here today so we can check this off our list. I worshiped, I attended church, I'm good for a week. Because you came to a physical space that has physical walls that you consider to be the church. But actually the scripture says that the church isn't walls, that it's not a building, and that it's not even a location. The scripture says that the church is people, and that people are everywhere, and that the church is everywhere at once. Yes, they come together to encourage and to exhort and to edify, but yet they disperse and they go back into the communities to be witnesses and to proclaim and pronounce the coming of the kingdom of God. So the church is neither here nor there, which is why at the very beginning of our day, we never would put church on our sign because we were like, it's only right once a week if you think about it because if it says, you know, the church is here, it's not here all the time. Um, but it gets confusing for people too. But anyway, that's a whole other story for a whole other day. But you get the idea that we tend to think with boundaries and we can tend to think of locations and material kinds of possessions. That is where God exists. They did too. The temple, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. These are the things that they would associate with the very presence of God. Now, the Bible over and over again reveals a God that doesn't have those kinds of boundaries. There are no markers that define this God. So if you don't like spirit, you're not going to like God, okay? Because spirit doesn't have edges, doesn't have boundaries, and that's how God reveals himself to us. Now, the reason I think that we struggle with that idea of spirit, and we love to kind of acquiesce to a building or a place, is because we have control over things and time and places, 
So I, if I want to subscribe to this, say I can control who comes in and who doesn't come into these walls. I can say, hey, you are welcome or you're not welcome to come in here. I can control what kind of songs are sung. I can control even how you worship if I wanted to. I could say, hey, you can do this, but you can't do this. If you do this, you're dismissed from here. And I could send you out of here. I could even determine and control what time of day or what day of the week we come in here and do these things. And it is our tendency as humans to want to control things. But God says, I am not to be controlled. I am spirit and I will do what I wish. I am not going to be contained in any boxes. Let's take this a step further. How else do we make idols? Okay, this is going to step on some of our toes, mine included, but it'll hit us in the face. It's our theological presuppositions. Because what we said is, this is who God is. And we put him into this nice, neat little box and we wrap it up and we say, God is a Calvinist. And God does this and this is the way he relates to people. And other people go, oh, no, no, God is Arminian and God gives choices to people and God does it. But what happens is we subscribe to one of them because we like those nice, tidy packages that we can kind of keep God in. We like to say these are the rules that God follows and he never errs or goes outside of these. When in reality, God is all of this. Can Arminianism and Calvinism be true at the same time? Parts of them can, yes. There are parts of this that contradict this and parts of this that contradict this. But if you really look at them as a whole, there's a lot of agreement about who God is. So what happens is we want to kind of put God in a box so that no one can challenge our theological presuppositions. This is who God is. This is the box that he stays in. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, again, there's nothing wrong with having theological convictions. It's an important thing, actually, okay? It's, it's dangerous when you think you've got God figured out. It's dangerous when you think, well, this is the only thing he can do, and he cannot operate outside of this. Because you know what that is? That's you controlling God. That's an idol. And sometimes we find ourselves guilty of that. Have we made God too big or have we made God too small? Um, I want you to think about something for a moment. I'm going to give you two illustrations. You ready for this? If I were to take a piece of paper, which I don't have one up here. You can maybe use one of these. I probably have one in my Bible somewhere. I always have junk in here. I don't either. Look there. I've cleaned out everything. One day I would need it. It's not there. All right. So you have a piece of paper on your, on your table, right? Just think about the thinness of that piece of paper. Okay. So not the width of it, not the eight and a half by the 11 part, but the other little, little tiny size section. Okay. Lay that down on your table. And I want you to think about it like this. That, that little bitty skinny part represents 93 million miles, which is the distance from the earth to the sun, right? We're all in agreement with that, that it's pretty close to that, give or take a quarter mile. So 93 million miles from the, from the earth to the sun represented by that little piece of paper, that little thin section. Now, let's take it to a, another degree. Let's say we wanna measure the distance from the earth to the nearest star, 
Okay, so outside of uh, our immediate sun, the next closest star, how much or how much distance do we have between us and the next star? Well, if you take a piece of paper and each paper represents 93 million miles, you would have to have a stack of paper 21 feet tall to represent the distance from the earth to the next closest star. Okay, but let's say you're a type A personality and you really want to dig a little deeper. And you say, I want to know, what is the distance from our Earth to the other side of our galaxy? So the furthest extent of the Milky Way. Okay, so we just know, we know the Milky Way. That's the one we're kind of cruising around in. I want to know how far it is from where I am to the farthest edge of that. Now, with a piece of paper where every little edge represents 93 million miles, you would have, a, have to have a stack of paper 310 miles high with each piece of paper representing 93 million miles. But let's say you really need extra credit to pass this class. And you say, I want to know what is the distance from the earth to the edge of the known universe? Like in other words, what we've been able to see with all of the telescopes and all of the little rockets that we sent out into space that are taking pictures as they just zoom through the galaxy and through the, and they see in further and further, the furthest that we've been able to see and actually look at with these telescopes and these, these, this technology, how far would that be? Okay, you would have to have, every piece of paper represents how much? you would have to have a stack of paper that is 31 million miles high to represent the distance from where we are to the edge of what we've been able to see. And the scripture says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's all it says about it. It doesn't make a big deal. They go, can you believe how big this is? He spoke this in his, it was just like, he had to pull so hard to make it. So, no, it doesn't make a big deal about it at all. He made the heavens and the earth. Moving on. <laughs> That's how big God is. Now think about that for a moment. He is way bigger than probably we even give him credit for. And sometimes we worry about things in our life and we're like, well, I wonder if God can handle that. Well, I wonder. Do you think he can handle those little problems you're dealing with? I mean, he pretty much has stretched out the heavens to the point that they are massively huge from our perspective. And somehow he holds all of it in balance. Scripture even says he holds it in his hand. Hmm. Now, let's think about this for a moment. God is infinitely big. You agree with me on that? But the antithesis would almost have to be true as well, wouldn't it? So let's think about this. In 1911, they discovered that atoms have nucleuses. Y'all have it written on your calendar, don't you? Happy Nucleus Day. And you wear the little hats and everything. And this is a day where they realized that in the middle of an atom, there is a proton and a neutron that is being circled by electrons. And they were like, wow, look at this, this tiny little, this is the building block of everything that is. They celebrated, they talked about it, they put it all in the textbooks. This is the smallest block of building that makes everything there is out there. And then all of a sudden, in the 50s, 
they developed this laser that was able to split the atom. And whenever they split that atom, out came baryons and mesons. And they were like, oh my gosh, we never knew those were there. I mean, look, we broke this thing open and inside are these even smaller particles. And so they celebrated that. You have it on your calendar, Meson Day and Baron Day and all that kind of thing. And then in 1968, they were able to split the baryons and find out that inside of them, there are quarks. I mean, they split that thing up, quarks spilled all over the table, just running off the edges of it. And they were like, there are so many of these things in there. These are the smallest building blocks of everything that is. And so with each advancement in technology, what happens is they learn to split it further and further. And they found out that quarks are made of gluons. And apparently those are the smallest building blocks of everything that is. But the other day, like me and a friend of mine were in the garage. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't do that. But they do believe that gluons, if we had the technology to split them, would have inside of them gravitons. They believe there's something inside of them that's spinning around. And if they were able to split it, that's what would come out. But we don't have the technology to do that. But what I am demonstrating for you is this, that it all depends on technology for us to find that the universe is way smaller than we even give it credit for. And yet, when God spoke everything into existence, even the little gravitons didn't get past his watch. He formed every single one of them and made them bigger and bigger and bigger into the things that are. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. Nothing to it. I just did it. Infinitely big and infinitely small. I think sometimes we're guilty of either making God too big or we're guilty of making God too small. We tend to think of one of the other. We tend to think of the universe and you think, wow, the universe is so big. Look at all those planets out there and all those stars that's so far away. Probably very few of us go, man, think about all the gluons and gravitons down there walking around inside my body. But the truth is they're both true. And I think our failure to recognize one or the other is also a failure to recognize some aspect of God. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. I want to finish by looking at the last part of this, which is verses 5 and 6. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, I don't really know how to explain this except to give you another illustration from science, uh, nonetheless, but I think that it really hits hard at what this means. Because you sit there and go, well, why would God visit consequences to the third and fourth generation of these, these, these people that had nothing to do with the sins of these fathers. And, and then what is this about the thousand generations that he wants to give blessings to? I, I don't understand that. There is something new in science that they've just come out with, still a theory, but that's called epigenetics. Have y'all ever heard of that? Anybody heard of epigenetics? Raise your hand. Yeah. You're like, I'm taking a class at it right now. Community college, epigenetics. Um, Epigenetics, and again, I am not a scientist. I'm explaining to you the best way I understand it to be. So I might have a little bit off, but I think I've got the most of it, the gist of it anyway. 
It is something they discovered by watching uh, one of the things in particular were rabbits. And they noticed that in the wild, that little baby rabbits, whenever rabbits were born, that they had this natural ability, this, this inborn ability, that whenever a hawk or any kind of predator bird flew over, that rabbit would duck down. Now that rabbit, that little baby rabbit, hasn't even lived yet very much, right? He's had no experiences, but somehow, even he, and as young as he is and his baby, he knew when that bird flew over to duck down. And they were like, how does he know how to do that? And they think, well, it's just, you know, something that they are born with, okay? But then they found out this really weird thing, because they took these rabbits out of the wild and they put them into captivity. And what they noticed was this, okay? And these are their words, not mine. After three or four generations, quoting, this is what they say, we noticed that the rabbits no longer would duck down when a predator flew over. They lost that connection, which is what made them study a little bit more. And here's the theory of epigenetics. They believe that experientially, again, the theory says it only happens with the males. Not my stuff, it's theirs. It only happens with the males, but whenever the male, let's say the male rabbit had an experience of something coming over and threatening its life, it had this experience. When it had this experience, it marked its DNA. And it had like this little tag that went with the DNA. So as that rabbit would have children, that tag was passed on to his children, which enabled that child to know to duck whenever they saw something like that because they wouldn't know on their own. But what they found is that in captivity, when they didn't have those threats anymore, after the third or fourth generation, the tag falls off and it's not there anymore. Okay. So that's, that's the theory of epigenetics. Now, I find it oddly interesting that it fits with exactly what it says here that the consequences of sin are passed on to the third and fourth generation. Sin is something that we experience. It's an experience that we have of rebelling against God and experiencing the consequences of rebelling against God. Could it be possible that that same theory applies in this way, that the male, the father, his DNA is tagged, and then he passes that on to the next generation? And so when we talk about the generations that have these, these besetting sins or these addictions that we say almost become hereditary, that you pass these on, could those be the experiences of sin that the father is passing down? Which, number one, I just want to challenge you fathers. I do this with my kids. I want to challenge you to do this as well. Talk to your kids at their appropriate ages about the things you've struggled with. Because that's the only way you're going to change this over time is to warn them, hey, this is what I struggled with. These were huge temptations for me. This is something you better be aware of because it grabbed me and drug me down and it's been dragging me the rest of my life. I don't want you to go through that. Stay away from this. You see what I'm saying? I think that's giving your kids a good start, a healthy opportunity to avoid these sins. But the other thing is this, if this is true, and we can do that for three to four generations, then we can break those curses. We can break those things that we say, well, it's just hereditary and it keeps getting passed down. Now, I don't know if that's 100% true or not, but I do find that that theory, that scientific theory, fits well with the heart of what this passage is saying, which is the sins of the father are passed on to the next generation. But if we can avoid passing them on and we can avoid them having those experiences, there is a freedom that can last for a thousand generations for those who love God or called according to those purposes 
purpose is, who make him first and foremost in their life. That is a freedom that God promises to those who pursue him. So again, as this passage comes to a close, I think what we're faced with is God says, don't make images of me because I am way bigger and way smaller than anything that you could ever create with your hand. I am way more vast than any kind of animal or any kind of celestial being that you could come up with. Those are all things that I just made. I didn't even talk about it a whole lot that I made them, yet I am not to be worshiped through those things. I am to be worshiped directly. I want a relationship with you directly with you. And so are we guilty of making God too big or too small? And I think that's the question that we're left with today. Have we made God too big or have we made him too small? I think ways that we make God too big is to say, well, you know, God can take care of my sin. And I know that Jesus died on the cross But you know what? I'm going to have to pick myself up by my own bootstraps and get through these things. You know what? God didn't lead me into this sin, so I'm going to have to get myself out of this situation. I'm going to have to earn this good gift that God's given to me. And so all these small things, we think God's big enough to deliver us on this big level. But for some reason, we don't think that he's small enough to know what we're struggling with and what's going on in our life. And so we instead choose to live with shame and guilt. And that's not what God wants. Or maybe we're guilty of making God too small. And we say, well, you know, sure, God can provide for my daily bread. And, you know, God can take care of these small aspects of my life. But, you know, my salvation and my conquering of sin, I'm going to have to do this myself. I'm going to have to be a righteous person. I'm gonna, God's not big enough to take care of those big things. You see what I'm saying? Or God's not big enough to figure out who I'm going to marry or take care of me as I get older or help me to grow this business. So I've got to do these things on my own. Do you see what I'm saying? So we either think of God as too big or too small, and we don't rightly put him in the perspective that he is both large and small at the same time that he is big enough to create everything that is and hold it in his hand, and he's small enough to know me as I was knit together in my mother's womb. God is infinitely big and infinitely small, and we are guilty of creating idols whenever we limit God in any form or fashion or capacity. The best way to know if you've made God too big or too small is to evaluate your prayer life. Look at the things that you pray about. Are they big things or small things? Think about that for a moment. Are they things that are huge and you're like, God needs to take care of this and he needs to take care of the world government and he needs to take care of Israel and he needs to take care of what's happening in Germany and he needs to take care of China and he needs to take care of who's the president of the United States and that's like all we're talking about. Or maybe we're guilty of the other side of it is, you know, my toe hurts. Uh, doctor says I need to quit eating this. And Lord, help me to not want that anymore. And so our, our prayers are almost like just super small. And I think our prayers should reflect two things. Number one, the bigness and smallness of God. And, and number two, the sense of urgency of the kingdom of God. Whenever our prayers reflect a relationship, they look less like a Christmas list and more like a love letter. Do you see what I'm saying? Are you, does that make sense? Can I explain it another way? Um, 
if, if all I say to God is, God, I need you to take care of this, and I need you to take care of that, and I really need you to come through here, and I need you to come through there, it's almost like a to-do list that we're quoting out to God. What God wants is more like a love letter. God, you called me when I was so far away, and you promised me you would never leave me nor forsake me. And yet, in the depths of my rebellion, sometimes I forget this. God, forgive me for when... I forget of how big you are or how small you are or how appropriate you are. Forget what you've done for me. God, I, I just forget. And Lord, you know the things that I'm struggling with and you know the things that are on my plate and the things that keep running around in my mind. Lord, I pray that my relationship with you would help to settle those things in my mind and to trust you with those things. Do you see the difference in that prayer and the first one? It's based in a relationship. And that's what God wants with us. Amen? Let's pray. God, there are many ways beyond what we've talked about today that this second word could be applied to our lives. And Lord, we've just scratched the surface of what this really could be. Um, Lord, I know that we are guilty in so many ways of creating idols in our life that represent you. Um, whether it could be a business that we see growing and, and a blessing from you, but yet we give all of our attention to it and, and not to you anymore. Or it could be a relationship or even an academic pursuit. Um, Lord, I just pray that for everyone here, Holy Spirit, that you would speak this word directly to their heart today. That you would help us to realize that you are not contained in any box that we would want to put you in. God, that you are bigger than life itself that you are eternal, that you stretch into tomorrow and you stretch way past yesterday and that you hold all things in your hands. Lord, I don't know the turmoil that came in with the hearts that are here today, but you do. And you know what causes them and you know where to find the relief. God, I pray that you would quiet the anxious minds and hearts that are here today with your, with your word. I pray that it would be something that they would hold on to and it would be a blessing to them. I pray that you would apply these things to their minds and to their hearts. And as we walk out of this place, Lord, may you receive the honor and the glory that is due to you through your children hearing and responding to your word. And we ask this in the name that's above every name, Jesus Christ, our Lord.